David was born and raised in Switzerland, but he then moved to seven different countries on three continents. After having started a marketing agency and accumulated years of experience as a consultant, he's now working on growing the product TypeWise, a smart and security keyboard app from Zurich. In this episode, he shares with us his personal experiences and learnings from running a tech startup. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks a lot. Hi, I'm very, very pleased to be part of our uh, podcast. Yeah, and you have told me that you have lived in eight different countries. So I'm interested what are countries you have lived in in the past? Yeah, um, I was very drawn drawn to uh, Asia uh, for for a big part of my life. Um, so I did a uh, high school exchange to Japan uh, when I was uh, seventeen. Um, through personal connections I made there, I then uh, went to Thailand um, a bit later um, during my studies, and uh, these experiences then kind of led uh, led me to uh, not wanting to go back to Switzerland. Um, so I spent some time in Netherlands, uh, uh, did go back to Switzerland um, eventually uh, to start my job. Uh, I realized that <laughs> in the end, uh, uh, it's, yeah, as a graduate, it's always easier uh, to find something back in, back in your home country. Um, but then left again to the US for a while. And then my career brought me uh, to, to Germany, where I never really wanted to go. <laughs> but then the career decided that for me. Um, spent some time in Mexico, um, where my wife's family is from. Then did a trip to uh, Singapore for about a year. I mean, you, you know, you, you know it much better than me. <laughs> but uh, like yeah. a very, like a very nice place. Uh, it's a bit like the the Europe of Asia, um, I mm -hmm. would say. Now that we have a family, we then decided to move back to Switzerland, where um, I think there's a lot of convenience. And then when you came back from the US or from Singapore, at that time, did you start your first business, the marketing agency, or have you already started before? No, that was before. It was our company, um, iCoaching. And, mm -hmm. and, and the way it came about was before actually moving to Bangkok. So that was during my bachelor's studies, I was studying in Zurich and I was working for an insurance company um, with a quite a good some sort of like freelance consultant salary as a student. Uh, so that allowed me to save up a lot of money, which I then splurged during my time abroad. My former boss there was like, yeah, like we like you, you should create your own company and, and sell, sell us this as your own service so you, you could even like double or triple your hourly rate and I was like oh that's great so we tried it um, we didn't get the project because they they didn't want to do it at the end but for we somehow got in the mood of, uh, of uh, making our own company and when I say we it's 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 my old uh, it's an old high school friend um, Janice who's also now now my current co-founder and he we did some IT projects already during high school and like some, I think one or two websites we programmed. And then when I started my master, so, so this first idea didn't, didn't, didn't play out. So we didn't get the service contract. 
But then during my master's in Rotterdam, some professor needed a website. And I think there was knowledge that I was doing websites before and she approached me and I sold it for just a few hundred euros. It's a very, very small deal. Then there was already like a second person um, like lining up, which was a bit of bigger things. I mean, still very tiny, but already like more than a thousand euros. And then um, there I also needed my co-founder because it was a bit more technical. And um, when I then returned to Switzerland, we decided to create like our own company. So we called it iCoaching. We said, look, we don't want to really be, really be doing websites, but I think it's good to start doing something to you know build a brand, get some clients. And this is what we knew what to do. And then I think it was basically through... Um, through university marketplaces, so these online marketplaces where you can look for jobs or post jobs. There were a few like SMEs that uh, posted website or social media jobs and we just wrote them and uh, that was basically our first client base and we did good jobs and then the, the contract became bigger and bigger. But at the same time, I started full-time work that time at Schindler Elevator. <laughs> so this was always like a part-time, like a part-time project to do on the side, which at some point it becomes hard uh, to, mm -hmm. to, to scale it up. Yeah. So we then started hiring part-time students who helped doing the work, but especially when it comes to sales and business development, this is very hard to hire someone to do it especially when you're still that small. And we never found, of all these employees, there was never somebody that said, hey, I want to partner with you and like, like a partner in this company. It was very hard to scale without our direct involvement. But that time, I think for me, the experience with a global, like being able to, to also then go um, abroad um, and, and work abroad, I think for me, that was always a higher priority than having my own agency working with small companies um, and, and a programming websites. So we always kept it as a side, um, as side, a side, side hustle. <laughs> yeah. But I think it was cool enough to have your own thing, your own show that we never stopped doing it. Eventually, um, after four years, my co-founder Janice, he then sent me on a Saturday afternoon, he sent me this very long email talking about the keyboard and saying that he has a better idea uh, for how we can solve this uh, 150 year old pain that we use in our smartphones. And that he basically did like developed a, a new concept of how to design um, a keyboard for smartphones um, mm. and not like and replace the one that's made for typewriters. And that was then this transition period, how we then went from being a online marketing agency into building our own product. And eventually we stopped doing client work like a year later and we handed it over to another agency and focused on the product. Yeah. And this was a bit the start of this whole venture that I'm doing now. Yeah, I was about to ask you, how did you come up with this type, type-wise um, business idea? Were you working full-time while starting this second company with your co-founder? Or you're doing it like a working part-time and then on the other 50% 50 50 of the time you are working on this? No, I had, I had by, by that time, I had moved into strategy consulting. So I started with a Booz, Booz & Company, just about to be acquired by PwC and turn into strategy end. Um, I lived in Munich, uh, then moved to Frankfurt, 
yeah, it was just during that transition from Munich to Frankfurt where this whole idea started. Um, we started with a prototype. So I was still involved in like evenings, maybe half an hour call here, maybe on Saturdays, just when you have like the need to for creative expression. Yeah. So this is the cool thing about a side hustle is you can really do it when you want to do it. And there's no real obligation. Um, just very rarely you kind of have to do something and it's late at night and it kind of it's annoying. But usually side hustles are very nice. Um, the downside is that it moves forward very slowly <laughs> um, for pretty much the same reason. Later in 2015, we then planned a Kickstarter crowdfunding campaign, evaluated the, technic like the technical possibilities of, of this keyboard idea, uh, which seemed to work on a basic level. And we then said we need to look at the market side. I remember we, we did this offsite in a, in a Strasbourg in France, the two of us, and we had a, a designer friend um, to join us to like help with the visuals for this, uh, for this campaign. And when I, when I traveled there, I still had last minute requests from my work. So you could already feel that it's yeah, the two things, they sometimes overlap and it, mm -hmm. it becomes very stressful. And we did the Kickstarter campaign, um, which worked out well uh, for us. So we had a bit of funding, uh, 15,000 fr Swiss francs at that time. And with this, we basically said, let's build like an app that we can then launch on the app stores to, to see if this really works. And in summer 2016, we launched it. Um, I was on my last project just before I was about to embark on my MBA journey to Singapore. So then I had more time in, in, in Singapore to focus on it. But basically my, my learning was building an app takes a lot of product effort. I mean, in the end you have to develop a product. Mm -hmm. And I think just putting in more business time only accelerates the business to a certain extent, but it's very theoretical. And if you can't back it up with progress on the product side to actually see the impact of your ideas, uh, there's, there's not much value to that time. Yep. So I think I've spent a lot of time during that year also talking to VCs and kind of, it was my first time doing that to kind of also understanding how do they look at, at, at this business. And I think by, by, by that time, so 2016, 2017, it was much too late to raise money with a, like, let's say with a simple app. What do you mean by too late? Like most people that are active in this ecosystem ha had realized that, let's say, only building an app does not translate into a business. So I think maybe five years earlier, you could have said, oh, I have an app and everybody was like, oh, great. You know, like, uh, can I invest in Apple is going to buy you and this is going to be super cool. And then, yeah, it was real. Like people realized, okay, it doesn't mean anything. And there were many apps that have turned out not to work at all. There were many fads, apps that had uh, millions of downloads one weekend, and mm -hmm. then it was yes. done. Yeah. So I think that that learning had had kicked in. So I think this needed much more um, thought than just let's say, oh, we create another keyboard which is better. For us, that thought came a bit later. I think we didn't this entire year. Yeah, I think it was a, a big learning process to think about what is a tech company, what drives their business. And it's more than like just a front end product that you can see, but there's a lot of 
technology behind it for me that like I, I I needed that let's say that year to also understand more more about this entire industry so um, I mean nowadays VC they do not just invest in an app because it's not good enough they look into the tech behind the app that is the more valuable part is that what you mean Yes, I mean it does. I mean it can be technology. It could also be a, like a great brand, but mm -hmm. then you, you need to have the great brand. Mm -hmm. And just saying I'm going to build a great brand is always very hard. Yeah. But if you look at at, at the successful apps mm -hmm. um, now versus ten years ago, back then it was maybe a a like a like a torch app or a fake uh, beer glass app that was suddenly downloaded millions of times. Mm -hmm. Because people tried it out, they were like, "Oh, cool! Look, I can I can drink a beer with my phone," and everybody had it, and it was gone again like a month later because there was no use to it. And how can you monetize this? No, like no way, right? And I think that was just a learning that occurred or like over a period of time. So like the whole app ecosystem had changed. If I were to embark again on a journey like this, I would try to understand much more uh, what I'm doing. So if I'm doing like apps, I would understand really how does the app ecosystem work. But how, how would you go to try to understand this? What would you do? Well, you can read books. So actually now I'm reading actually quite a few books and I think I could have read them maybe two, three years ago. Um, like what are the books you're reading now? Now it's actually a funny title. It's called A Billion Dollar App. Uh-huh, okay. It's very good. It's from the founder of of Halo. Um, they transitioned into the My Taxi app, which is called Free Now. It's owned by uh, I think um, um, Mercedes and BMW. And and he goes through the different stages of uh, what is your prototype, and you raise your first round, and then it goes on and on and on until you're like uh, you know like on a on a level like Instagram, but. I think it just gives you a broader perspective. And I think we were very focused on our idea. And I think we found our way always by trying ourselves. And we obviously looked at others, but we never tried to understand, let's say, the app ecosystem as a whole um, at the beginning. And I think this knowledge is very crucial. It's the same if you want to do software as a service. Mm -hmm. I think great to understand more the bigger picture i mean that's what we do in strategy consulting and maybe, maybe with hindsight i could say that i was even working as a strategy consultant why didn't i do this more and the reason is because it was a side hustle it was fun mm -hmm. um, i didn't have to need to like i i didn't have any pressure to make any money with this i didn't even expect to make any money with this this was just a good side idea and we thought oh yeah let's let, like let's launch the app and it will be fun and then we saw, well, actually, this works. Well, we should maybe try to make it bigger. But then you suddenly reach a point where, yeah, maybe you need investors, and then your entire story of a side hustle is not going to work. Yeah. I think even if you have a side hustle, I would approach it the same way as you approach, you know, like a full responsibility project, because learn, like you would be more diligent about like, is it good what I'm doing? Am I entering too late? Is is like is the timing correct of what I'm doing, and not just is it a like is it a good idea? So I think mm -hmm. this homework with it way like I don't want to say too late because I think we're on a good track here. Mm -hmm. But we could have done the same thing earlier, and it mm -hmm. wouldn't have 
harmed us. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the books that you have read or you are reading. Is there anything else that you think might help you to gain the knowledge earlier? What I've realized now is that we're a team of ten people. It's also very different than than than, than working only with a co-founder that that you've known for years. So for us,、uh, the entire Scrum methodology has become very important. So I actually got a Scrum Master certificate before we we started full time here.、Um, I don't think you need a certificate for this, but I think in in, in general it helps. Like having a clear methodology of how you organize your team, that's very important. So for me, like the whole Scrum idea and also the mechanics of it were very good.、Um, I'm now actually listening to. It's a book called "Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time" by Jeff Sutherland, I think. So he's, I think, one of the masters of scrums. I, I could recommend. And then I think it's a general staple of like you know Eric Ries and、uh, Peter Thiel, and those like、uh, Zero to One, those type of books. Like some books usually help you like reflect on your idea, and like when you read that book, you always have your idea in mind. And you kind of played through、uh, how they played their、um, ideas through. Yeah, was always good. But I, I was always a guy that was very slow in reading books. So I know there are these people that read like one book per week. <laughs>、uh, I take a to finish it. So, <laughs> I mean, like you said, you you had an idea in your mind, maybe your business, and when you're reading it, you. Try to take your business through the maybe the methodology or the journey with the book. Of course, it would take some some time. I mean, it's someone like me. I just read and observe the information. I I do it very fast. It's different. And then, <laughs> and then now you have um ten team members. And then, do you do you know that you need a scrum master, or you? Learn it from someone that you know. This would help you to manage the team. I was one part of a pilot group that underwent like an agile training, so I think I was just lucky that I I could do it. Maybe as part of my previous job, I might not have done it in a startup because you're like, oh, it's a waste of time, and I have to like, why am I like, why should I do this? Yeah, I I I can like、uh, listen to a YouTube video for thirty minutes. I understood it. But yeah, maybe you didn't.、Uh, um, I mean, I mean, maybe if you do, then that's great. But I think for me, it took a bit more time than thirty minutes to really, because you have to hear it like twenty times over. Because in the end, you have to apply it like super rigidly every day.、Um, yeah. And I think that's part of the power of Scrum is this repetition and、mm-hmm. yeah. doing it the same way. And I think. You to be able to do that, you also need to get it hammered、um, into your brain、yeah. yourself.、So. <laughs> and also, there's a difference between understanding it and believing it. Yeah. Sometimes you learn something, you understand the concept. Yeah, you understand this is correct, but you didn't really believing it because you have to really use it and experience it and then believing it. That that is very true, and I think there. Um, because we we were twenty consultants,、uh, usually managers or like principals, taking that course together,、um, so there were a lot of critical questions. I mean, it, it meant doing your job differently the way I've done it for the past five or ten years, but still having at the end twenty people that say this was great. I think also then for me gave me more confidence. Now also applying it in my own startup, knowing yeah maybe sometimes we think is this sensible. Do we need this、uh, like this sprint planning every week? 
isn't it a waste of time or this demo Friday on Friday like really but having seen that 19 other people also were convinced that gave me much more confidence to like stick with it trying to find out well, why why is, doesn't it work or why do we I'm effective maybe we have to tweak it a bit that gave me much more confidence if than if you just read it somewhere another app for and, you, if you yeah then one guy challenges from you the right like, well, beginning yeah, what actually, would you do know. differently um, and then you you may abandon things too early uh, mm, yeah and besides a scrum master if you would start another app or if you would start typewise from the right beginning what would you do differently yeah i would do much more user testing we have had a user group from very very early on not we didn't do systematic user testing we did test certain things and we obviously always were open for feedback but we have now understood that and it also depends what tools you use but now there are tools like you can pay 10 users in a certain country and then you give them a task and they record themselves with with the screen but you also see the actual user um And that's very powerful because, and maybe when you launch a new feature, you can just quickly test it. And it's very different from maybe giving it to your friends. You have to be very disciplined to not explain them anything when you sit next to them. It's very tempting to just say, oh, maybe press there. <laughs> <laughs> have you thought about clicking there? <laughs> yeah, well, let me show you. Uh, and, and with video recording, yeah, it's just, it's absolutely impossible. And you can do it with different cultures and see how does a guy from Brazil or from Bangladesh or from Germany, how, how, how like, is there a difference? Mm -hmm. um, I think we've recognized this possibility too late. We've often had feedback And we heard, oh, yeah, maybe the onboarding is difficult. But then we always tried, the, like the way we, we approached it was we, we get feedback and then we try to reproduce the issue so we can fix it. And we've obviously asked, can you send us a screenshot? Can you like record your screen? Um, eventually, that was like a new feature. But I think it, it was still too much. We, yeah, we tried to understand a single person and, and, and if we couldn't reproduce it, Then we were like, yeah, he did, like he did a mistake, um, which maybe he did. But if you see, if you see them doing the mistake, trying five times the same thing on us on the on a video, then you're like, okay, this can't be. Like, we have a problem with our app. <laughs> we need to fix this step because if somebody's struggling like that, and if you see five people struggling like this, yep. and they're trying for minutes, do a simple step. You know, you have to fix it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so I think these are new tools. Maybe they weren't, I don't know if they were available five years ago, like, like this, but now it's very easy to use these type of testing tools. Mm -hmm. I would encourage like everyone to test much more. Uh, What are the ones you are using now, the testing tools? I think it's Nomad Task, like the one we're using. Besides testing, what do you think are the challenges having a startup in Switzerland compared to in Singapore where you used to live or in US you also used to live here? For me, it's a bit hard to, to answer the US part. I mean, there I have not built my own startup. So mm -hmm. I, it's only anecdotal stuff that I can mention. So one thing is in Switzerland, yes, there, there is money, but people are very risk averse. So I think you need often a working prototype um, 
often people want to see sales like revenue. And again, that's not my own experience, um, but from what I hear from like Silicon Valley or the US in general, that often with an idea, um, you can raise like a seed, like a seed round. And here in Switzerland, um, I think this is impossible. Yes, of course, if you're in like, like biotech or very high capex, high tech, even there, you, they, you would need to have a, a patent or at least a patent pending. You would need to have like three PhDs from ETH working since five years and some crazy thing. And this all needs to be in place. Yeah? So it's not an idea. You have a technology, you just haven't built it. But even there, I think like investors in, in, in Switzerland, they're, they're very risk averse. And for us, the challenge was now with our current business model is, is B2C. So we sell our app through the app stores. There's no past success from Switzerland um, doing this at a large scale. And we know it's hard, yeah? probably most apps, they never reach this huge scale. So people are like, oh yeah, but that this becomes a huge company. You need like 10 million downloads, but this is, uh, yeah, so you need to be successful internationally. So this is very tough. So we only do B2B. I've heard this. Um, a lot of times, so for us, it was very, like, it took a long time to find the right investors that were also willing to, to like, take on this risk uh, and, and also go down that path. Whereas I would say in Singapore, at least this P2C issue you don't have. It's rather the opposite. I mean, you have a huge Southeast Asian market with, like, Indonesia and Malaysia and Thailand, and they're all growing. Um, and um, There are lots from- of seas there. In terms yeah. of the face, the sea is very yeah. big. Absolutely, yeah. So I think there you could, I think all scalable consumer businesses, that's not a problem for a Singapore investor. Now, the other thing, I mean, that's, that's for the money part. And I think the other thing you need for a startup are the right people. Um, I think here uh, you get very good technical people at the very advanced technical level. So I think with ETH or like EPFL, I think we have two very good universities. So I actually just spoke to a guy from Singapore today um, and he's very interested in our technology because he also has a hard time finding good machine learning engineers. And we work with ETH, so we have three good people from there. So I think that shows here it's a very unique spot in terms of these type of talents. When it comes to software developers, Again, I think it's very difficult to find people in Switzerland um, because it's a bit less advanced. So, so that means it's a very dry environment to, to, find, to find good developers. And the way I experienced um, a place like Singapore is that you have, um, you have more, like there's, it's maybe a more liquid um, environment when it comes to software development. And then for Switzerland, what you have to do is then go abroad. That is maybe then the beauty of the EU. Um, so it's very easy to do business across borders within um, the EU or certain related countries. But that means you have remote teams very quickly. We're such a small country and we lack certain expertise. Um, the other expertise that, um, that we lack in Switzerland um, is, is in terms of marketing. Um, so they're not Swiss, Swiss people. I think it's very hard for to find Swiss people here that have good marketing expertise. Usually they work in corporates, they do marketing um, for corporates. That means they're, they're used to working with agencies, 
but doing it themselves, um, it's very unlikely. So either we bring in people um, that come from abroad that have gained this experience abroad and then come here, um, or we directly work with people from outside. So Berlin uh, or Barcelona or, or London, uh, Moscow, or if you really, I think, want the best people, you need to go to the US. And I think yeah. this is then a bit the challenge that we have, and then that results in remote teams. But I think there's also value in, in, wor in, in, in working together, especially when you're a new company, uh, when you have new employees, and if they're isolated, sitting alone somewhere, I guess in good times, it's okay. But if you have tough times, it, it remains to be seen, also in our case, uh, how this it has an effect on like employee retention. What is, if, yeah, what is their connection to the company if they've never really met anyone? Maybe they're more likely to leave than if you know, you're a tightly knit team that always has lunch together and goes for dinners and, 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 and drinks. Um, I think uh, that's, that could be one of the challenges. And also I find Switzerland is a, in a very unique situation because compared to Singapore, Switzerland has a much tighter um, visa process. And in Singapore, there are so many foreign talents. So even a startup need foreign talents, they could easily bring them to Singapore. But mm -hmm. in Switzerland, there's this quota and it's a lengthy process to get someone, especially from third country nationals, to come to work in Switzerland. It's really difficult. Mm -hmm. And also, as you mentioned, people who work in Switzerland or Swiss people, like the salary is so high that it's so comfortable for people to get a corporate job here. Why people would venture out doing a startup, which they would not know if the startup still will be live in the market five years down the road. So all the things together, I find it's very challenging for startups to find the right people and to, yeah, just in general to find the right people or even bring the right people to the country. I, I, I totally agree. And then the, what, what always puzzles me, like I, I had the same experience also like tying it back in with your first question with, with, with going abroad, that very few people want to go. I mean, they like to go on vacation, but I've not really met anyone um, that really wants to leave. <laughs> yeah, who, who wants to move abroad, right? Just vacation, yeah. but not move abroad. Yeah. And then for the audience who is interested in learning more about TypeWise, you mentioned it's a keyboard app. Probably um, some of them could already find it in Apple Store, or Google Play Store, right? Yeah, you just type in TypeWise and, and, and you can download it for free. So the idea is why are we uh, typing on a, on a keyboard that was made for typewriters in, in the 19th century with small, small keys, and which doesn't really use also the benefits of, of touch screens. Um, and why should we make a lot of mistakes? And then depending on which keyboard you use, often the autocorrection also starts doing uh, random things. Mostly also when you use like multiple languages at the same time, which more and more people do. And lastly, especially on, on, on Android, there has been an increasing problem of a lot of like keyboard apps that also record your data. They, they sell your data to, to advertising companies. They have often have very intrusive ads, not even on the keyboard, but at other, like in <laughs> just other moments, and you don't know it's from the keyboard app. 
but because the keyboard app is such a central piece to your phone, yeah, it's there on every single app. We, we believe it both like, let's say what we call intelligence. So it has to be smart. It has to understand what you want to say at this moment, but it also has to be secure at the same time because you might type very sensitive stuff. And that's why we built TypeWise. One thing you will see or what you will notice is that we've built a, a hexagon shaped layout. Um, it looks a bit scary at first, but actually um, it's very similar in terms of the keys um, to the current QWERTY, but that way the keys are much larger. It reduces your, your typos just by, by the size of the keys. You can also switch to the um, um, original layout. We also implement the gestures of uh, deleting and restoring text or capitalizing letters. Um, so it's like, the, it's just stuff you can do with a touch screen um, that you couldn't do with a mechanical keyboard. Um, and we kind of use that. And then what we're now working on with our um, engineering school, ETH, is also what we've received a, a, a research grant from the Swiss government, um, is work on these text predictions. So the whole autocorrection or like word completion or sentence completion, um, what we want to do in the future, that's what we find today um, from our perspective is still very uh, rudimentary. Um, so over the next six, 12 months, uh, there will be a lot of improvements. And it's also something where we believe we can license this technology to other companies. So not in shape of a keyboard, but you could use it in other keyboards or you could use it in, in also desktop software when you type text in like chat or like corporate, uh, like corporate messenger, uh, stuff like Slack or Teams, um, email and so forth where just text entry becomes uh, faster, becomes smoother, becomes more productive. Um, and that's basically our, our bigger vision of, uh, in the end, powering every um, interface between us humans and our digital devices with our text prediction technology. I would really recommend all the audience just to give it a try. It is very interesting. It's a very unique keyboard that for your smartphone? No, of course, and maybe like one like one thing I, I, I forgot to mention, it's also what <laughs> we always talk about MVPs um, and launch quickly. When you launch a product in the app stores, users expect it to function perfectly. Mm -hmm. You so, see it as MVP, they don't see it as MVP. <laughs> yeah, so I think we have to think in terms of MVP, not as mature, maybe with less features, that's fine. You can start with like one feature, but that feature has to work perfectly. And if competitors have more features that you don't have, um, you will quickly see which of those are essential because your users will tell you, look, for example, with us, it was, we didn't have these text predictions or like these words, um, like word um, suggestions at the beginning. And people said, oh, I like your idea but I'm not going to use it until you have like word completion because that's what I expect of a keyboard today. And that makes the entry barrier suddenly very high because that's not a feature you, you develop in two days. And this can happen with any app. If you build a, like if you build a messenger app, they might already um, expect, yeah, you can do voice. And if you don't have voice, I'm not going to use your messenger app. If you don't have stickers and GIFs and all sorts of stuff, 
I'm not going to use it. If you, if you can't do group chats, which suddenly becomes very complicated, you need, yeah, you need a big infrastructure to do that. So it shows that um, the, like the expectations for each app category has been set by some leading apps. And to break into that category, there may be some features that are not relevant, but uh, there's maybe a basic set of features and maybe some of them are not that easy to just do. And if you don't have those features, you will not, people will not use you because it has become a standard. And I think that has made that, I think it's a huge entry barrier for any uh, new app developer um, to like really mm -hmm. um, get traction on the market. Yeah. Yeah. When there are more and more app available in the market, the barrier is higher and higher because users take it for granted. Like I have to have this, it's basic. Yeah, like why would I switch? Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for so much information. And I hope the audience would get a lot of values today. And if some of you wants to try out TypeWise keyboards, just search TypeWise in Google, uh, Apple Store and like Google Play Store. Yeah, thank you very much. Cool, no, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. If you liked today's episode, make sure to subscribe, share, and like it. And see you in the next episode.